And still basking in the after 4th of July glow, this is the DC Comics News Podcast, episode number 32. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, and I am joined today by Kelly Gaines. Hello. And Brad Felicki. Hello. And we're here, just like you might find us almost each and every week. Almost every episode, although our cast does rotate much like the Mighty Justice League. And you can find so many different members appearing on each and every different episode. But still, that same great message. What's going on in the world of DC Comics? And that includes not only the books, but the television, the streaming news, movies, and everything that falls into it. We even talk about collectibles. Seriously, listen to a couple episodes. We really talk about collectibles. But today, we're going to kick things off with a little bit about the uh, new Joker image that's come out for the cover of Empire. Um, I know I had my thoughts, but I wanted to go ahead and just uh, see what everybody else was thinking. Brad, what did you think when you saw this story? You had a chance to check out the image. Uh, you know, Empire's always a good place to go for breaking stories. And like they, they always seem to have those first shots from a lot of movies like this, so it was kind of cool to see, although it didn't really give us any more insight on exactly what the movie is, per se, but they are still cool to look at. Uh, I, I like, there was two different images, and I like the one that was kind of split down the middle, where half was Joker and half was just regular Joaquin Phoenix's face. I thought that was a, a pretty cool image. Uh, and it does look like this makeup that's going to be be the makeup that we're getting i kind of you know when we first started seeing the image of the face paint i kind of thought that that may have been like a a pre-joker makeup but it looks more and more like that's what we're going to get which i'm happy with i kind of kind of like the design so that's my take on it gotcha kelly what were your thoughts so i love it um i actually it reminds me a lot of like a, a pink floyd album cover kind of i forget which one but there's one in particular that the uh, the image where it looks like his face is splitting looks so cool and so kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm excited. I think it says maybe not anything concrete about the movie, but it does kind of show that they're going for a more psychological, um, you know, sort of that disparity between the man who becomes the Joker and then the actual character of the Joker. So I am really excited. I think it looks great. I can't help but agree with you both about the the points you brought up. One, it doesn't seem to give us a whole lot more <laughs> about the movie or any sort of new information. And yet the style and the stylistic quality of those shots was really telling. I, I think you really uh, tapped into something there, Kelly, when you were saying it's kind of showing the two different sides of the man. Um, and I, I thought the image did a great job of that distortion. You know, this idea of... You know, first here's this guy being played by uh, uh, River Phoenix, and then there's this sort of transition. Um, I'm sorry, River Phoenix. Wow, I dated myself <laughs> right there. Wow, it's okay. Hold on, hold on, old man. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix playing Joker there, and and then suddenly through that that filter, that that transition of the image there, that great distortion, the idea of just how much more dissociated from reality that character becomes and uh you know brad you mentioned of the two that uh 
it sounded like that was the one you preferred the most. Am I getting that correct, or was it the second one? Because we, no one's really described that one as much. Yeah, that was the one, the the first one. Got the one sure. where he was not superimposed, but the one where it was kind of split down the middle. That's the one. That's the that's Got the one you. I personally like the best. Yeah, and just the striking, you know ability for that image to just sort of say a lot about, hey, you're going to see two for two different sides of this character based on who they become and who they were before that. And unfortunately, there's not much more to go on except that. But I, I do love the idea that it's continuing to reinforce that image. And Brad, um, I also agree with the idea about the makeup, that that's, that's the Joker we're going to get. You know, there's not going to be some other transformation of the makeup or some... Um, I'm not sure what new version of it. I think that's that's going to be his Joker, and that's that's how he enters into this personality. So, other than you know those sort of little things that we can try and continue to read into, um, we can always just hope that the next sort of news item is going to tell us a little bit more information, or if nothing else, satisfy ourselves by being teased just a little bit more with these great images and. I'm going to be honest, uh, you know, teasing. I can live with it sometimes, to an extent, to an extent. Um, I'm going to go ahead and move things along to uh, our next story, which is that, oh, I love when there's names, and I'm just a little bit doubtful about how to pronounce it. Christopher (laughs) McQuarrie, McQuarrie, I'm going to say it, pitched both uh, Man of Steel 2 and a Green Lantern movie to WB. Now, I was somewhat intrigued by both of these ideas just because of a lot of the details, but I can talk all day about my ideas. The best part about chatting with this fine group of people is hearing the, the really great perspectives they bring and how they added the conversation. Brad, what were your thoughts on this story about Christopher McQuarrie? Uh, it was interesting. Uh, his tweets, I, although they did sound a little bitter. Uh, you know, that he says that the studios never cared for his original ideas. They just prefer that I fix their broken ones. So <laughs> it was, that wasn't it, a happy it, one. <laughs> that's not that's <laughs> he doesn't seem too happy about that. Um, that's I'd not how they say. <laughs> yeah. I wish it was kind of like an avenue uh, or a platform on the Web somewhere where these directors can go and say, hey, here's what I pitched or here's a little bit of a screenplay I wrote. For these projects that never see the light of day, that you know, that fans can kind of wonder about, um, and I'd be I'd be curious about this, especially when it, it seems like in terms of it being interconnected between the you know the the Superman movie and the Green Lantern movie, that seems that seems like we could have some uh, cool uh, you know cool connections between those two characters. But you know, I guess at the end of the day, we'll never know. That is a challenge, aside from, like, an ask-me-anything moment on, um, is it Reddit who does that? I'm not yeah. sure. One of the platforms where, yeah, they've got the ask-me-anything. Like, unless someone actually hops on there and just opens up in that way, and yet still, you know, unless you know that that's where they're going to be or that's where everyone who's going to talk about movies is going to go, it's really hard to get a one-on-one or a sort of singular grouping of people to chat about that with a creator or someone so involved with the project like a director uh kelly what were your thoughts on this one i mean i i do feel bad for the guy especially because he does seem a a little bit bitter about um you know the fact that it seems like not only were his scripts not 
utilized, but that they he pitched them and they just never really got back to him, which I know, um, you know, that can be extremely frustrating as so much where it's, you know, if it's a no, just give me a no, as opposed to, you know, just kind of existing in limbo. Um, I mean, on a personal note, there's a huge part of me that's glad they're coming away from Superman. Um, you know, so I, I wasn't one of those people really buckled in to see Man of Steel 2. Um, but then, then on the same wavelength, if there is a director who really wanted to kind of dive into the story and really had a vision for it, um, you know, it is unfortunate that we won't really get to see what he's going to come up with. But, you know, hopefully in the future he'll be able to work on more original projects and, you know, maybe won't feel so jolted. I agree with that. I definitely, uh, you know, look at what's being said here. And what really stuck with me was what you said, how he he was really mostly, it appears, frustrated by the fact that there was just no answer. And if you're going to put the time and effort into a pitch, the least you can hear back is the yes or no. Allow me to move on from something instead of feeling like I, I never really got any sort of final answer or any sort of recognition of whatever it was that I had offered up. Like, what was it that worked? What was it that doesn't, you know, maybe I can refine it. Maybe we can talk about it. Instead, you just, okay, thanks. And <laughs> nothing, you know, just complete and utter uh, limbo. And I like that you both brought up this whole thing about bitterness. Um, I mean, clearly from the tweet provided, and just for a little bit of background when it comes to this story, essentially, while talking about working on a project, uh, The Prisoner, this, this sort of, you know, discussion began with a few people chatting, asking some questions about what's going on. You know, what about your attachment to Green Lantern? Is it true or not? Is it too complicated to explain? And he says it's too complicated to explain and then proceeds to go on to reveal more information that it was tied into the Superman movie that Cavill and I were proposing that there were no takers and that they didn't care for his original ideas that they preferred to fix his their broken ones. Um, that really sounds <laughs> like there's, you know, a lot of, you know, lack of desire to disguise his displeasure, but also this sense that, you know, so many of these things that were being offered were new and sort of taking what had already been established and giving it some, I don't know, I guess, room or expansion while at the same time helping to connect things. And the biggest challenge, I think, with original ideas is, when you're pushing against what's already been established or the sort of mindset about how you want those characters to appear, they'd already seen some of what happens when that goes wrong. And the Green Lantern movie has been one great example. Um, and yet at the same time, it feels like they were letting those things hold them back. And if they were willing to do that and continue to do that, we wouldn't have some of the great movies we've recently had that, you know, were maybe in some doubt like Aquaman and others. Um, any other responses or thoughts, you know, just about this story before we go ahead and let it go? Because sadly, what we are talking about is there is no forum for people to do this. Neither of these movies are really going to happen. And this was just sort of a rare sort of glimpse into where this, uh, you know, this person was coming after offering these pitches and, and knowing that without any real response, a lot of questions were left for anybody who cared about the projects. I, I would just say that. Christopher's going to be just fine. He's got <laughs> two more Mission Impossible movies to make. He's uh, he's good. <laughs> Keep your head. <laughs> <He'll be fine. laughs> 
I can I can see that yes, he's got some franchise you know connections. He should be okay for work for a little while. Um, although I, I am intrigued with the fact that part of the pitch included Henry Cavill, so I, I would be curious if at some point someone doesn't want to you know reach out to uh, Mr. Kent and see if he has anything to say about these pitches to follow up on McCory and or if maybe <clears throat> he's as bitter because that could be interesting. Um, but moving along until we hear more about that story, uh, development on a project that many of us were wondering just where it might go, a new announcement suggesting that Andy Muschietti has signed on to direct the Flash solo movie. Now, this is a project that also should still be including Ezra Miller, um, but there's still a little bit of uncertainty because there had been announcements leading up to the summer that his contract would be ending before the summer, and that without uh, a guarantee for this project, that there was really no sort of sense that it was going to actually get going or have enough momentum to carry it past the sort of limbo it's been sitting in. Brad, what did you think about this announcement about the director and what this might mean for the Flash Solo movie? Uh, more Flash breadcrumbs, it seems. It seems like every <laughs> week there's more like, you know, hints and allegations about what this Flash movie is going to be. Will Ezra Miller be in it? Will he won't? Who knows? I do like, I, I do like, yeah, Andy Mushi. I'm now. I'm gonna butcher names. Uh, Andy Muschietti's uh, movies. I like it a lot. Uh, I like his take on kind of modern aesthetics in movies. That I think he could bring some cool things to the Flash. And another little tidbit in the story is that um, uh, Christina Hassan may be writing the movie, and I like her writing. If she can turn around the Transformers franchise, then you know. I'm sure she can you know, she can do some cool work on the flash. So we'll see what happens, you know. Let's until you know, until we have more concrete information. Um, you know, we'll take what news I can get, so we'll see what happens <laughs> if it becomes a reality at this point. Right. I like the concept of breadcrumbs. Um, regarding these breadcrumbs, what were your thoughts, Kelly? I think I mean it's it was interesting to me to see that Ezra Miller is still technically or currently attached. Um, you know, I was under the impression, like you said, that he wasn't going to continue after this summer. Um, and I know he pitched a version of a script that was a lot darker. So I'm wondering now if they're going to work with a darker script or if, you know, if they are bringing Christina Hudson on, are they, you know, maybe going to go in a lighter direction? Um, I, it's going to be very interesting to see how those elements play out together. And if, um, you know, if Ezra Miller actually really remains the Flash, or is this kind of, you know, he is still currently attached, but it's also not the end of summer yet. So it's very possible that, you know, and at some point in August, we hear that it is, you know, just a director and a writer right now, and that they're still looking for someone to actually play Barry. So I'm, I wouldn't say hopeful yet, but interested. I, I like that at least it's moving in some sort of a direction at this point. Any sort of motion or momentum is a good motion or momentum, exactly. I guess, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, if you wouldn't mind, just for me to follow up with both of you, because I thought you brought up some great things that uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about, and hopefully anyone else listening feels the same. If not, just tell me to shut up and I'll stop, I swear. <laughs> um, but regarding the director, Brad, it 
Muschietti, Muschietti, I'm I'm okay with however wrong I get it. You mentioned some things about his style, and if you wouldn't mind just uh, referencing that for us, like what is it that you've seen him do before, and what what are, about those styles that we can sort of you know keep in mind or consider as this you know announcement lets us think about the Flash? Well, look, to me, I, I my biggest reference on that is it, uh, because even though it took place in the 80s and it was based on a story that was written in the 80s and um you know it could have had that retro feel but he made it in a way that made it feel like a modern horror movie and a lot of times when directors do that it kind of falls flat and and i think with it he he maintained the visuals and um, you know, just the color schemes and things like that, the characterizations, and it's still packed a punch as a horror movie, even working within those kind of modern takes on it that aren't necessarily as scary as they could be. You know, yeah, I wasn't feeling like I was watching like a 70s film like The Shining. I felt like I was watching a horror movie in 2000 when that movie came out, like 2000. Uh, 16 at this point 16 or 17 so I, I like that he can like he can still make a good movie with those kind of modern takes on horror I think he can okay. do the same thing with Flash well and that's interesting to me because you know what what I thought that was great that Kelly brought up was about the idea of how Ezra Miller had been leaning towards a, a somewhat darker tone and that that might match up really nicely with the director with the experience on a successful horror project like it was. Um, and yet this sort of changes a little bit now with the possibility that Christina Hodson might come on because, you know, Bumblebee was sort of more of a heartfelt drama comedy, if I'm not mistaken, correct? I mean, it was the Transformers yeah. universe, but it was more about, you know this this character bumblebee making a connection with people and and sort of you know having that foundation that's going to be part of his future also with uh, birds of prey and the upcoming um batgirl does any of that uh, announcement or possibility that she's uh you know could be involved does that change anything about what it might mean for either this flash story or the the sort of collaboration with a director like machete buschietti uh for either of you just out of curiosity. Well, I, I think that I, I think that you could even see, even if it is more of a you know heartfelt script. I mean, Flash is not necessarily a dark character, uh, so even if the the script is more heartfelt, I still think he can do some good things with it. You could you see it as a palate cleanser. He's been in the it world for a while now, so you know it's maybe he wants to shake that off a little bit and do something a little a little brighter. Yeah. Okay. Anything from you, Kelly? Sorry. I part of what I'm interested in is with Christina Hodson doing, um, you know, Birds of Prey and whatnot. Is this some sort of indication that they're going to try to tie them together, or, you know, is this just her sort of extending herself just into DC as a whole to kind of shape up some of the parts of the franchise that didn't work in the Justice League? Um, you know, so I'd, I'd be interested to see what, if we mix together an actor who wants a dark flash story with a horror director 
and a somewhat more lighthearted, you know, heartfelt writer, what we would get out of that. I mean, it's it could be a really fantastic movie, or it could mean that, you know, the tone won't click. So I, I'd be interested to see what exact, like, what elements of what we know them for will actually play out if this movie comes to fruition. I couldn't agree more with both of you, especially because, as you pointed out, Brad Flash is not a, you know, it's not a, a dark story overall. And yet, Kelly, you brought out the, the point that, you know, you would be collaborating this um, well-known horror director who would be working with a writer who's done this heartfelt work. And that between that, that interesting collaboration, you could actually bring about the two best elements of The Flash. You know, when talking about Barry's story, one of the hardest thing for, things for him is the, the death of his mother and the incarceration of his father. And those are two very interesting elements because the death of his mother is by a horrible, you know, very vindictive character in his mind. And, and the way that character ends up, you know, changing who Barry grows up to become and also how part of that foundation is also built through this really heartfelt connection with his father who's in prison during this time while he's growing up. Those are, you know, very difficult things to bring together. But with this collaboration, you just might have all the pieces you need to make that happen. So I love the way you guys have brought those ideas in for me because now I'm thinking to myself, wow, they could really do something amazing here. And if it does combine into that great success that Kelly, you said it could be, and Brad, you pointed out, you know, this could be this great palate cleanser. Maybe that sort of idea could be taken as well with a, a palate cleanser for the DC, you know, uh, film universe and Flash's connections to some projects that they're moving away from. But also, you know, just to go into Kelly, I like also that you're saying this connection that could be established and how this movement of Hudson into not only Birds of Prey, but Batgirl means maybe moving her more into the DC movie universe those could all lead to some really good developments if they sort of make this recipe work with these ingredients. Um, I'm really excited now. You guys have really brought up some great things for me to think about about this movie. Um, now my hope is, boy, can you guys make it happen? Because it sounds like, from what Brad and Kelly are saying, you've got all this stuff we need. It's just about whether or not you're going to make it work the best way possible. Uh, I can only wait to see and hear more. And uh, I thought these were just breadcrumbs, but now you guys really make me think they might have more like, you know, half a loaf. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to go. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to go ahead and uh, slide us along because there is one more bit of news on the movie side before we shift away for our break. And that's the announcement that Vanessa Kirby has been rumored for the role as Catwoman in the Matt Reeves, the Batman. I myself am not as familiar with uh, Vanessa Kirby's work. You know, I'm familiar with the movies Mission Impossible Fallout and also uh, upcoming Hobbs and Shaw that'll be coming out. But I'm not as well connected with those franchises as far as uh, viewing them or seeing her in action on the screen. Did uh, Brad, did you have a sort of like, you know, response to this initially based on your experience, you know, watching her acting or anything like that regarding how she might fit as Catwoman, well, and the Batman? I think I think it kind of makes a, a, 
good amount of sense for her to be in this role if this rumor turns out to be true. Her star is kind of on the rise, um, be, you know, between The Crown and Mission Impossible and Hobbs and Shaw. Judging by the Hobbs and Shaw trailers that have been released, she's definitely handled the role physically because she's into some definitely big combat scenes in Hobbs and Shaw. So I think between, you know, wanting to cast somebody who is kind of up and coming and uh, but could still handle the action sequences, I think she is a good choice. And for her career, it would make an excellent choice because that could be something that could just just blast her into the stratosphere and make her a household name for everybody. So, you know, on the surface, okay. it seems like, a, seems like an interesting choice. All right. Uh, and thank you for bringing up the uh, first two seasons of the Netflix is the crown. I forgot to mention that um, she played princess Margaret. I also didn't see that. Maybe I simply don't watch enough television or movies. I, I can't really say for sure, but Kelly, I was also curious what you thought about Vanessa Kirby. If you've seen her in any of the, uh, you know, projects that we've mentioned or any other associations with the regarding the Batman. Honestly, I haven't seen her in anything, which to me makes it almost a better choice because I like when, um, you know, when they pick actors that are not as established and then they can, I guess, bring the character to themselves almost. Like when we saw Ben Affleck play, play Batman, that becomes, you know, you, you have to get over the fact that you're watching Ben Affleck pay, play that. Wow, pay Batman. Batman does not need any more money. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you're just you're having to see a face that you're familiar with um, play this other character. Whereas because she's a little bit, you know, her star is on the rise. She's not quite as known. I think that does actually give her a little bit more leeway to play the character true to whatever her vision of the character is, if she actually ends up playing her. Um, you know, but as long as she has sort of a base understanding of the character, I think there's no reason why, you know, we should be against her playing it. I, I think it sounds like a decent idea at the moment. I couldn't find any argument in anything you or Brad just mentioned about her selection as casting. Because I haven't seen her, I'm also hopeful that that means being an unknown she can really become the character embrace the character um make the choices that allow her to be that character uh on screen and, and do so in a way that feels original to me because i do know that one of the hardest things about seeing the 1989 batman was less about michael keaton and more about the fact that i was watching jack nicholson as the joker and it was hard sometimes to separate that from the joker I also agree with your example with Ben Affleck as Batman. There was a part of me that was looking at him as Batman, comparing him with the Christian Bale version and the other versions who've come before and sort of, you know, weighing him against that and also being fully aware that this was Ben Affleck who'd been Daredevil. And how did that mean to me that he was playing another iconic character, another iconic superhero um, and whether or not the, the Ben Affleck could recede enough for Batman to stay on the forefront. Um, so with this character, you know, and not having that same sort of exposure, I, I feel a similar way. But, you know, I think he also brought up the best point, which is, you know, without any sort of opportunity 
to see her attempt this role. Um, we don't really know just what it is she might be capable of doing with it. And even if we have seen her in other projects, which Brad, you've had the opportunity to, and know that she's got a lot of the strengths that would make her a good, you know, Catwoman, all of that could be, you know, brought to the screen in a completely different way that changes all of our own expectations uh, based on what we do or don't know about her. That probably can lead to some of the best excitement and anticipation, especially because Batman or the Batman as it is, has already built up plenty of anticipation with six villains and so much more with the announcement of uh, Robert Pattinson as the newest person to put on the cowl. It feels like there's a desire to go ahead and challenge what we've already seen of Batman on screen and to give us a, a new sort of uh, story arc and a new cast of characters who experience the mythos. If they if they do this right, it could be its own defining example of Batman instead of one we end up comparing to others. Um, any other thoughts before I move this away? I think you summed it up pretty well. <laughs> I, I try, I try, I try. <laughs> when I've got this hosting mic, what's that? <laughs> Has, has anyone seen any Robert Pattinson say anything about the fact that he's playing Batman? I just realized that, like, I, I don't think I've seen him actually weigh in on the fact that he's Batman yet. You know, that's a great point. I myself am trying to think if there was something significant or specific that I I saw. And now that I'm trying to, nothing is upon recall. Brad, how about you? Have you no, heard any? No, I, Interesting. Nope. I, I don't know how, you know how active he is on social media but no i haven't oh, it's being a creature of the night about it which is good <laughs> right hey if you're gonna start building the mystery you know start early man keep us keep us on our toes so when he does finally say something we could be like dude it's been months or weeks or however many days since the announcement and finally robert pattinson speaks kelly great point i'm really curious now to see what he will say if and when he does say anything before the Babbitt. How many days until Robert Pattinson speaks? Uh, this could be a I fun little campaign. Never says anything. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised either now that I think about it. Um, I think he could really play this in many different ways. And uh, I think as this, the tension and suspense sort of builds, I'm curious to see which way he ends up taking it. That's a great idea. Thanks. <laughs> Any others before we step away? Because after that great one, I don't want to, you know, miss out on anything. We good? All right. All right. In, in that sort of uh, frame of mind, then, taking pauses, we're going to pause, take a quick break for a nap, just a few seconds while we go ahead and let you know about all the things we think are important for you to stay in the loop when it comes to DC news, DC comics, and cause sometimes we have to pay bills and that's just how it goes. We appreciate you hanging out for just a second during the break. And we're looking forward to coming back to you in just a moment. Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, editor in chief of DC comics news. Are you planning on heading to wizard world comic con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's DC 
N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that, uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com slash tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. Back to you guys. And thanks for coming back to us. You're joining DC Comics News Podcast, episode number 32. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. I'm joined today by Brad Flicky. Hello. And Kelly Gaines. Hello. And we already wrapped up our movie news topics, but we're charging full steam ahead right into TV and streaming news because... Well, there's still all that great sort of 4th of July fireworks, barbecue, food, bonanza steaming us along. And at least for me, it's one of my ways of fighting all those excess calories. Keeping that in mind, I can't help but notice that I wasn't the only one who decided to go big for 4th of July. It appears that DC Universe is going big at the San Diego Comic-Con. While it was a little bit disappointing for everyone to hear that Warner Brothers would be skipping Hall H, that doesn't mean that there won't be a huge list of things coming out for DC Universe members at the San Diego Comic-Con. We've got a two-hour event on Saturday night. There's all sorts of breaking news about Titans, Doom Patrol, Young Justice, Outsiders. I could talk about everything on this list, but that's just going to make you annoyed that you're only hearing one voice. So I'm going to pass it around and ask what Brad and Kelly want to sort of single out. And then we'll wrap up the rest together as the fun, fantastic group you've come to know and love and listen to. Brad, what were the things that stuck out for the most about this announcement about, you know, DC Universe going big instead of going home? Well, I'm glad to see uh, I'm glad to see that they're still pushing uh, the streaming service because there's been you know rumors that it wasn't doing well and and you know and it, it seems like they're really still pushing it and that's great because so far the content is has been amazing uh, and I'm kind of hoping with this two hour event that we get some more um, concrete news on the second season of Titans and to, I don't think they've announced whether or not Doom Patrol is getting a second season so hopefully we'll also get some more information about that. Uh, and, you know, hopefully, definitely some Harley Quinn footage. So, yeah, I mean, if I was going, I would, I, this would be a place where I would definitely want to be. This would definitely be a panel that I'd want to be at. I would uh, only agree, you know, simply about the things that you mentioned, including one new updates, but also, boy, you brought up a great idea about the Doom Patrol. Yes, I don't think I've heard anything about them being you know announcing anything about a season two uh and also this uh you know the upcoming animated uh comedy series with uh, harley quinn sounds like it could be a really great sort of first look kelly were there uh any of these things that stuck out the most for you regarding uh this announcement i mean all of these events look like they'll be really fun um you know and really great for dc universe subscribers I think the main thing that stuck out to me, though, is I I can't decide really if it's a good idea or a bad idea to have DC Universe exclusive events. Because on one hand, yes, that means, you know, everyone who has subscribed will really get their money's worth and get this huge payoff at, you know, San Diego Comic-Con. But then at the same time, if we're looking to bring new people into DC Universe and get, um, you know, fans that maybe haven't haven't subscribed yet, haven't been invested in those shows yet is it 
maybe a bad plan to have them barred from going to these kind of events. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm a little bit conflicted, but all of them look like a lot of fun, and I really wish I was going. Um, you know, but, but yeah, I, I think it, it could either be a serious miss or a serious hit. I'm not positive. I also had that same thought and concern, and I, actually I want to follow up on it because I did notice if you move down, I sort of bullet pointed some of these things that were announced about it. And right about the part where they're talking about the Young Justice Outsiders number one, DC Comics number 1000 comics, it says there, uh, with the purchase of an annual DC Universe membership on site and online. And that sort of caught my attention because I was wondering the same thing. Like, this sounds like a great lineup of products, but if it's only for DC Universe annual members, how do you expand your viewership? How do you get this great thing that... Brad, I can't help but agree with you. DC Universe, in my opinion, its content has been top-notch. So I'm happy to hear that they're going to continue on with it, hopefully with these announcements. But how do we expand that viewership if these great events that they're offering are only available to members who are currently with DC Universe? But this idea that you can you know, get a membership on site makes me think that while you're there, if this huge list of you know great events is available to DC Universe members, that you can purchase your membership right there, and then maybe have the chance to participate if you just you know buy in on the moment. Any, any thoughts about what that that you know meant for you guys? Because that's how I was sort of interpreting that information, and, and kind of wondered how either of you uh, saw that, thought about it, or upon hearing and thinking about it, what your feelings were. That could uh, be really smart. I mean, I I know personally that I tend to buy ridiculous things at conventions just out of, you know, you're there, you're excited, you have money, you might as well. Um, right. I mean, I, like I have a picture of Jace Momoa on the Mona Lisa from the last convention I went to. Just, I, I don't know why I wanted it, but in the moment I was like, this this is worth every penny. So, I mean, that, that could actually be good for them to be able to buy it on site. Um yeah, that, that could fix a lot of the issues with, you know, if people aren't necessarily barred, if it's just you sign up, pay, you know, however much it is, $8.99 or whatever, and you're good to go. Um, that that would actually be a really good strategy. And I, I, saw the, I saw the strategy work at, uh, at New York Comic Con last year. A friend of mine bought a membership so he could get the exclusive comics that they offered they said if you get the membership here it is and it worked it got him he joined <laughs> up right then and there so uh, i i've seen it work so i you know maybe they're on something okay so it could be that there's a plan it could be that they're actually expanding their viewership through this great selection and just to go ahead and tag a couple that really sort of stuck out to me um, exclusive screening of the premiere of DC Spotlight Shazam, which is a behind-the-scenes documentary. Um, All-inclusive trip to San Diego, VIP tickets to attend Batman's induction in the Comic-Con Museum Hall of Fame, uh, extra perks at the booth on the, shore, on the floor show, a chance to attend a private DCU member brunch yacht in the San Diego Marina. Um, these all sounded like a, a huge list of some fun things. Access to a sign-up for members only signing with Jim Lee. I mean, essentially, if there's more than two on this list of things that you would want, it sounds like, on top of all the content that we've already been enjoying on DC Universe, 
this would be something of a no-brainer. And Kelly, as you mentioned, you generally bring money to these things like you do to a casino. If you plan on getting it back, you're already going to lose. But if you just let it go <laughs> and enjoy the ride. And I saw your post with the Momoa uh, Mona Lisa. In, Momoa fact, Lisa. I, in fact, yeah, I want to call it Momoa Lisa. That was just awesome. When I saw that, I was like, oh, someone had a good time at the <laughs> convention. I that looked awesome. The second day. I wanted it that badly. I thought about it the first night, and then the next day, I was like, you know what? I need this. <laughs> wow. See, that's that's brilliant, and I like the idea that it was the thing that you were going back for. Hopefully, <laughs> when it comes to this thing, maybe that's what happens with people. They'll hear about it, they'll think about it, the next day, they're like, yeah, how much per month? Okay, and how much if I buy the whole year? Let's do this. Let's just do it. Um, that that could really be all it all it takes. And the list of things they're going to get to enjoy. I can honestly say, if I was at San Diego Comic Con, I would want to do this stuff. But I'm not, and I'm not going to get me or anyone else worked up about the fact that we're not, uh, unless either one of you is, and you're shyly, you know, avoiding from sharing that with us because you don't want our, you know, judgment. Um, <laughs> okay, so yeah, we're all among good company here. Uh, before I slip away onto our next little tidbit, anything else regarding this convention or DC Universe you guys wanted to chime in and and uh, bring up before we slide through? Cool. Okay. Um, when it comes to DC properties, especially when it comes to those outside of the DC Universe on the streaming and television side, Few have really caught the attention of fans and viewers than Arrow and its recent change in planning, at least for those of us who saw it going on to maybe 15 seasons, with the announcement that this upcoming fall would be its final season, that would actually be a shortened season, and with some of the teasers and sort of hints and foreshadowing, uh, there's... There's a lot of darkness ahead for this final Arrow season. As part of teasing that, there was an announcement to provide a, a little bit of bait for those of us who find these, as Brad so perfectly put them, breadcrumbs so tantalizing. And a little bit of imagery was released, but beyond that, not much more. Uh, aside from something really neat to look at and sort of twist my brain around, Brad, did you have any sort of response to this little teaser for the final season? You know, it's it's kind of a bummer because it seems like, you know, the the fan base is very loyal and they absolutely love it. So, for you know, for those hardcore fans, it's sad to see it go. And these cast also seem to really get along and really enjoy working together. They seem to really love the show too. So it's kind of a bummer to see it go. But, you know, nothing can go on forever and kind of good to end when you're kind of on top instead of after you jump the shark. So maybe it's not a bad time to go. Although I, I, I guess at the, at the end of the day, I was kind of hoping that it would be a normal length season, not a shortened season, because now that's less time for them to wrap everything up. So I just kind of wish it was a full-length season. Both good points. Actually, all good points. Um, you know, it's really hard to disagree with anything right there. Uh, you know, I'm going to cover it again in a second. But, Kelly, what were your thoughts regarding, you know, the Arrow season and, and this sort of teaser that was given before uh, 
we start getting into the nitty gritty. You know, I, I agree completely, Brad, that you should, um, you know, it, it should be more of a goal to finish up a show when it's still good, when it's still on top, when, you know, you haven't exhausted all of your, you know, storytelling and abilities to kind of twist the plot. Um, so if if they are ending it on a note that, you know, we have a planned story, we're going to make sure that the show has the ending it deserves, then... You know, it's unfortunate, but I am more for it. Um, if it's coming from a place of, you know, maybe they, they didn't have enough money or enough funds to continue it, that's a little bit different. But I would much rather see a show go out while it's still a good show than, you know, kind of drag itself through the mud, which I've, I've seen with so many shows. And it's always disappointing to be like, oh, yeah, watch the first six seasons. But then after that, like, you're good. You don't need the end of the show. Um, so... You know, I'm I, I'm in between with it, where if if this is going to be a great ending and it's going to, you know, give the fans that have loyally followed it this far some sense of closure, then, you know, OK, it's sad, but OK. It's hard to disagree with either of you. You're both the points, uh, you know, it's really easy to sort of go, yeah. And then go, okay, wait, wait, no, yeah, okay, uh-huh, no, wait, I agree with, wait, over here. Um, the biggest thing for me probably has to be the concept of the shortened season and what that means. I agree with you, Brad, it'd be nice to have a final season be a full season. But, Kelly, I also have to agree that, you know, you're right that there has to be this degree of planning. Um, simply because, one, if you're going to do a shortened season, that means with time limited, you also know that you're planning to go out in a way that you want and one that if you can plan for, you can do to sort of the satisfaction of not only the team that you've worked with for all these seasons, but also the fans who've supported you and who kind of deserve that, that great ending. And looming over all this has been the crisis on infinite earths. And one thing about that, that sort of crossover is that things happen really quick. So my only hope is that if they're going to shorten the season down this way, and they're going to do it with this sort of level of planning and forethought that it's going to feel almost so fast or so quick or that the transition of events is sort of hurtling forward. When in many times when there's a longer season, you almost need these little breaks in between while building up to that big season finale to sort of allow not only the team um, but the viewers to sort of process sort of these big developments that occur. And because you're dealing with this short season now, you won't actually end up probably getting those breaks. It's just going to feel like Arrow, uh, without just beating to death this example, is going to be like a loose arrow. You know, it, it, it never really slows down. <laughs> it just sort of picks its target and speeds ahead. And if that's their intention, what we could really feel is the sense of like, wow, this is how quickly things can change. This is how quickly we can see everything about, you know, what Stephen Amell and this team have done with Arrow sort of charging towards its finale. And that can be a really interesting experience, especially if building all that up, we do get that great finale. And it's done with this sort of urgency, but also this sense of, you know, there's there's just enough heart in there for everybody who's been with us since the beginning. Um, it's really challenging because there's a lot of things that you want. And yet also keeping in mind that when you put these limitations on how much more you can sort of do with that sort of 
time. I don't know. Uh, you guys have really brought some interesting things to mind for me. Re regarding the uh, images they provided, they're pointing out that it's, you know, a tie to a new costume. Um, you know, from little upgrades to huge overhauls, costumes have always been in changes, have always been kind of part of this story. Does anybody think that this might be leading towards, especially with the sort of foreshadowing that, you know, Oliver is heading towards his death, that that these were hinting towards uh, a passing of the guard, a uh, a changing of who would wear it, as has been in the case previously with Diggle and others? Or did it feel like maybe this was just the new uniform for the new season and quit trying to read so much into it? I personally, I don't think they would kill him off. Uh, but hey, I mean, that would that would certainly be a way to end the show, I guess. Um, but I, I would say I don't think he's going to, I don't think he's going to, I think it's just a regular costume for the new season. Okay. Kelly? Yeah, I, I would hope so. Um, you know, but if they are going with darker colors, it might not be him getting killed off. It could be that there is some sort of, he's going to be in mourning in a sense over something crazy that's going to happen. Um, you know, I, I would hope that they wouldn't kill him off, but we'll, we'll see. There's, you know, there's a billion ways they could go with that. So it's, we can only hope for the best. Yeah, they've made a point of suggesting two very strong possibilities. At the end of the last crossover, Oliver agrees to make a deal. And at the end of this last season of Arrow, it appears that when Monitor arrives, he's willing to accept that deal. And yet there was a final twist regarding some sort of agreement made between Felicity and the monitor. And I feel that that's going to be part of this growing tension in that final season of who is it who's actually going to be making the sacrifice. Um, although it was also confusing because the towards the end of last season, I thought if I remember correctly talking on this podcast that this season would be Felicity's last, that she wouldn't be on the last season. So now I kind of feel like I'm really all over the place with this. <laughs> and I, I'm really not sure just where it is, you know, they're going to bring about um, the, the sort of finale. And also, as you mentioned, crazy, what part of this could get crazy, you know? Um, you know, Kelly, like how you mentioned that idea of they could really mix it up and get it crazy. And I'm not really sure how they're going to do it. You know, if they do throw that last little twist in at the end, um, how things will wrap up. As long as they don't Game of Thrones us. <laughs> that's, 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 all I, that's all I want. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, with that in mind, we're moving along to the announcement that Doom Patrol is heading for home video release this fall. Um, of course, we're still waiting, as Brad pointed out, to hear whether or not there will be a second season of Doom Patrol. And hopefully at San Diego Comic-Con. You know, we'll get that announcement at the big DC Universe event. But for those who enjoyed the first season and are happy to go ahead and pick it up on DVD or Blu-ray, it'll be available starting October 1st. Um, all sorts of details that go into this. But really, you know, what does this mean for you guys, either as fans of the show, collectors, or any and all of the above? Brad, how about for yourself? Uh, I'll say what I said when they released Titans is that I'm glad they're doing it because it gets the shows in more people's hands. Um, you know, not everybody has a DC Universe subscription, but most people have a DVD player or a Blu-ray player somewhere in somewhere in their house. So if they never watched it streaming, now they have the perfect way to 
to watch it at home. So, you know, I, I just love seeing the stuff getting in more people's hands. Definitely. Kelly, how about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's a great idea considering that, you know, you did need a subscription to see the show. There is a huge possibility that a lot more people will pick it up, um, you know, if they can pick up the actual DVD or download it digitally. And then on a, on a personal level, as someone whose Wi-Fi is super spotty and not reliable, I love being <laughs> able to pop in a DVD on my, like, Dark Ages days. So I, I'm all for it. I think it's a great idea. Well, yeah, you brought up the great thing. I mean, there are times when the Wi-Fi goes down, and if you want to enjoy stuff, if you've got it on DVD or Blu-ray, you know, it, all you got to do is pop it in the player and you're ready to go. Um, and I, I really think, uh, you know, we're probably missing out a little bit by not having our good compadre, uh, Steve J. Ray with us to give us that sort of international perspective, because I know mm -hmm. one of the things that he's always disappointed by is that right now DC Universe is limited to domestic United States. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, those of you who have followed any of the chats that, you know, sometimes come across when the uh, staff from DC Comics News are chatting, those that we have located in other parts of the world really wish they could access this. And at least now, if it's going to be available in a DVD Blu-ray format, it's something they can pick up and bring home instead of hoping, waiting, and praying for the announcement that they'll get that streaming service that we all enjoy in the country where they reside. Um, other than that, I mean, really, the two points you guys brought up were, were the biggest ones you know, that I could think of. One, Brad, bringing in more people and allowing them access to this content that you only get if you're part of DC Universe. And two, Kelly, having it available so that when Wi-Fi, whether it's spotty or simply down, isn't a factor when you want to enjoy one of your favorite shows or a show you just want to watch through all over again. Um, two great reasons if I ever heard any. And uh, really sort of make it easy for me to slide away from that one and into this announcement that on a recent episode of Drunk History, Tessa Thompson played Eartha Kitt's Catwoman. Now, we could go into what the story talks about, but really, if you don't have something to say about this based on the headline, clearly, well, you just haven't been listening to us because for us, that's really all we need. Brad? go <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah i think it's i think she actually makes a pretty cool eartha kit uh that little picture that was on twitter i, I dig it um <laughs> it's, it's funny to me that people were angry about it i mean come on it's <laughs> history it's not like I mean, are you really gonna, okay, are you but really it's also Twitter, so yeah. <laughs> everyone's angry all the time. Like, it, it's it's the one place oh, where I man. expect people Rolls. to get angry about things. Like, you you can have you know a kid holding a puppy and a kitty and they're kissing and people are gonna get angry, man. It's just gonna <laughs> happen. <laughs> oh man, all the things you can complain about. Even in the nerd world, <laughs> you're gonna complain about who plays Catwoman on a Drunken History <laughs> episode. Oh my god. Right, but, you know, because that's what we base our standards on now, drunk history. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, what were your thoughts? God, I, I love drunk history. It is one of my favorite shows to watch when I just, like, when, you know, there's nothing else to do. It's so funny, and it's honestly, uh, what's his name, Derek Waters has my dream job. Like, that has to be the most fun job in the world. 
Um, you know, so it, <laughs> I love it when they cover comic book related stuff. Um, you know, even just to to explain it to my friends who aren't comic book fans, it's always so much easier if I can just make them watch something. Um, you know, and I know seasons back they did the um, the Superman radio show when they kind of disparaged the KKK, and you know <laughs> that, that episode was fantastic. So I am. I need to see that episode. It looks great. And I, I genuinely don't understand why people were so angry about Tessa Thompson. I mean, she looked fantastic as, you know, as Eartha Kitt. So I, I'm, again, I'm all for everything, apparently, but I, I'm all for it. I love, I love the show. Love that they're covering that. Um, you know, and, and Tessa Thompson's a badass. I would love to see her do more with DC, honestly. <laughs> well, I, uh, I'm not really sure what all the fuss was about either regarding backlash or disappointment or whatever the anger that was being expressed was. Um, apparently there's one was about, about her being a horrible actress or the wrong choice, which just seems silly because I thought this was something that's supposed to be on a comedic side. So isn't that part of the irony and humor and the twist is you know, making a casting that seems unorthodox and yet therefore adds to the, the humor. Isn't that humor? Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, really, it, it, at some point, it, it really just points out that, yes, if you put anything on Twitter, people will fight and get angry about it. So just, you know, keep that in mind. Um, but if you're going to be looking for something about drunk history, it sounds like we might be getting a future show from Kelly if she can get the right pitch together to the networks for your own version of this, which would be really cool. You'll have to let us know if you get a chance you to do that, best. Kelly. <laughs> 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 um, but, you know, to, to agree with both of you, it is really simple. If you look at the picture, and I highly recommend that you just go and type in Tessa Thompson, Catwoman, you should be fine. My last thought was I love that so many people were saying, hey, is Matt Reeves watching this? And that that was part of the conversation, an idea that maybe supports what Kelly was just saying was, hey, uh, can we get more Tessa Thompson in the DC universe one way or another? Um, I'm happy to go ahead and just say that that was a fun story to set up this next one, because this reminds me of another sort of little Twitter controversy I, I heard, and I'm happy to share after I get some feedback from you both. But the announcement was made on July 1st that the Sandman series, very popular uh, and created by Neil Gaiman, is going to be moving from its comic book version onto Netflix. Uh, that alone in itself is, again, another one of those titles where it's like, yeah, I could talk a lot, but really... The title says everything I need for you guys to tell me what you think. Brad, what were your thoughts to this announcement? I am so excited. <laughs> my, my main takeaway is that I'm so glad that it's going to be a series and not a feature film. Just a regular film could not do the story justice. And, you know, there's all this talk about how we're in the golden age of TV. So... The quality of a Sandman TV show could be every bit as good as a huge blockbuster movie release. And it needs a whole series. And it is one of my favorite pieces of comics literature. <laughs> I think if it reads really, I think it's probably one of the most impressive pieces of literature of the 20th century. 
and I'm, and I'm not even exaggerating. Um, so yeah, I can't. And I and I love that Neil Gaiman's going to write the first episode to set the tone, and everything. I think that is a great choice, and he's going to be um, acting. I think as an executive producer, so I'm glad that he's going to be involved. So you know, if the ship gets too off course, he can help steer it back. So I I cannot wait. I will probably, this would be a show that I would take a day off work so I could binge the first <laughs> season as soon as it hits. That's how excited I am about this. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, what were your thoughts? In <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Shh. Brad was just joking. If he does call in sick, he's really, really sick. He always yeah. lets me know right before, and then usually I talk to the doctor for him just because we have that kind of relationship. So I'm just saying... For anybody who works with Brad, he's really, really sick. Come on now, really. <laughs> Kelly, what what did you think about that? A way to point out that we need to make sure that everybody knows that Brad's really, really sick. <laughs> Kelly, what were your thoughts? Brad, our, our, our thoughts are with you. But <laughs> <laughs> I personally, I love Neil Gaiman. He is far and away my favorite author. Um, you know, and then obviously with American Gods, I, I loved what they did with that and Good Omens was just a huge success on Amazon Prime. So I think this is the perfect time to have another gaming story out there. Um, I'm so excited to see it. I'm glad that Netflix is doing it as a series because Netflix seems to pretty much knock it out of the park every time. Um, you know, they have good production quality. They tend to really make stories that are true to the source material in a lot of cases. So I'm really, really hopeful for this. And I'm not even going to let myself think of the you know, alternatives of it not going well. I'm just going to be straight up excited. <laughs> those are uh, those are both really glowing endorsements. I easily agree with both of you about the idea that this has to be a series. There's no way that a feature film attempt would ever actually do the same in universe or the story, uh, the justice that it, it rightly deserves. Um, Brad, I, I loved your comments about it being the best literature of the 20th century. Uh, you know, Kelly, I love that you pointed out just how successful his other products have been. Um, I was a huge fan of Good Omens. I thought it was amazing. I don't have stars, and with the moving around of American Gods, I'm just trying to figure out how to find it so I can binge it properly and then sort of get, you know, dug in on that. But um, the only thing that really sort of caught my attention about this and the only thing that, that's nagging at my brain from the moment I read the headline, and I'm really looking to hear what your thoughts are, is uh, why isn't this on DC Universe? And I just sort of paused for a minute and said, hold on a minute. Okay, no, now I'm really annoyed. Why isn't this on DC Universe? Why Netflix? And it, it took me a minute to just sort of think about, you know, American Gods, okay, and Good Omens, okay, over on Amazon. But... Sandman feels like it was always, for me, it was always part of that DC vertigo. So why is why is something that should be uh, part and parcel with the great sort of dark mystery we've had with Swamp Thing not being embraced by DC Universe when it comes to Sandman? And I just wanted to go ahead and e either one go ahead and start that going if you have any thoughts or if you think I'm just crazy and I should understand that this makes perfect sense, please just school me. I... I think that it would just be a matter that Netflix might have more money than <laughs> DC Universe streaming service or you know or what Warner Brothers would be willing to pay to make 
the show, but Netflix would have more of a budget to do it and do it justice. That would yeah, be and I, I mean, and it Kelly. could also be, um, you know, that Neil, Neil Gaiman, I believe, currently lives in the U.S., but he's from, um, you know, from England, so it's possible that maybe it's just a sheer, if DC Universe isn't available abroad yet, that, you know, this is because it's one of his books, one of his shows, that they're trying to make it more accessible. Um, I'm not positive, though. I mean, that, that is a really interesting point. I hadn't considered that. Yeah, that was just the main question that had come up for me. And it was something that was, you know, just sort of wondering if you guys had any thoughts. I do like the idea about the budget. I feel like that might be a factor. Um, and Kelly, really interesting that you brought the English equation into that. But I wanted to go ahead and also point out that there was this great story that I read on Twitter, which was by a young lady who was really disappointed when she heard about this story. What she said was that uh, she really didn't like the fact that she felt that this was Neil Gaiman selling out, to which his response then was, uh, actually, no, you must have me confused with DC Comics. This is actually their property. Oh. <laughs> they have the rights to do all this stuff they want with it. And I just thought immediately when you guys were saying, wow, anybody on Twitter is going to get angry when it comes to this stuff. It was like, wow, what a perfect example. Yeah. <laughs> she just went ahead and chimed off and had the creator come on and say, so let me talk to you about properties and licensing and how much control I really do have about certain things. Thanks. <laughs> and that brings to light. Yeah, I like that that shows how kind of Neil Gaiman is the anti-Alan Moore when it comes to those things. Somebody's going to adapt the work. He can help and get in there and see it through where Alan Moore just washes his hands and doesn't want anything to do with it. Uh, it's kind of fun to have Neil Gaiman involved. I like that point. Thanks for bringing that up, Brad. That's really curious. Kelly, I felt like you were, had something to add on there as well, but I, I kind of had you guys overlapping. I didn't quite hear it that well. Oh, no, no worries. I um, yeah, actually, it's I do like that Neil Gaiman tends to be enthusiastic about adaptations of his work. He he doesn't come off as someone who is just you know I created this great thing and now I am unapproachable and you know God help you if you want to do anything with it. He seems a lot more accessible, a lot more willing to adapt what he's created for more people to get into it. So I you know yeah yeah it's it's good that he has the Gaiman approach as opposed to an Alan Moore approach to it. <laughs> yeah, there's something about inclusivity and a willingness to work and to share a degree, as as I think was really well pointed out by Brad about the idea that Neil Gaiman and David Escoyer will be not only executive producers, but that all three will be working with Alan, or that all three, both of them will be working with Alan Heinberg so that all three can co-write the first episode. That's really a degree of involvement that says whatever my ownership of these properties is in in name, shape, form, or letter doesn't uh, have to impede how much I'm able to make sure that the version of them that ends up on screen is what I think is the best possible, given everything that we have to work with, the writers, the, the other members of this team. And his ability to go in there is, as you guys have really pointed out well, uh, a real sort of departure from what we've seen from someone like Alan Moore, who's like, yeah, it's impossible and good luck. You're going to fail. 
go away. Um, <laughs> and I, I felt like that's the only response that I heard uh, whenever I would get excited about one of his projects, whether it was Watchmen or something else being turned into, you know, something that I would get to see on screen. So many people said, yeah, but, you know, Alan already said it's impossible, so it's probably not going to work. And it was just like, wow, I'm so not excited anymore. Way to ruin this for me. Um, and and that's something that you can avoid with someone like Neil Gaiman willing to get involved and make sure this is the best possible product. And if he's willing to do this, it, it gives me the highest hopes for Sam. And, and I, I think you guys have really kind of steered me straight on the idea of why I can accept that it's not happening. Um, at the DC Universe. And given some of the things uh, that's been going on with Swamp Thing and budget, I can see why that would be a concern about wanting to make sure it has the best possible budget. And if Netflix is the one to provide that for them, well, that's a good enough argument for me to see this done right by the right people uh, with the right financial backing. And I can live with that. So I'm willing to move on to the next story, but I've loved you what you guys have added in about this. So final thoughts before we step away? Don't mess it up, Netflix. Mess it up. <laughs> nice. I yeah. like a stern. I like a stern warning in the final thoughts. Any from you, Kelly? <laughs> um, not make make sure everyone has good proper pants. But, but you then. know, proper pants. You know, we're going to be looking for that in the next shot. And if you don't know what we're talking about, you just need to listen back one or two episodes and you'll hear that giggle that Brad's making to a much greater degree. And it's pretty funny. Um, it just really is. It's got to do with Superboy. And that's all we're going to say about it. Because how can you keep talking about past when the future looks so bright with the announcement of the Stargirl series and the emerald sort of emergence of Alan Scott Green Lantern making an appearance. Wow. Really? Like, what other details am I supposed to go into after that sort of thing? Uh, Brad, what are your thoughts about this? Um, because it's an interesting story. It's kind of fascinating to me, all these different characters from all the different areas of the dc universe that are rumored or confirmed to be in this show it makes me like who whoever's behind the show the showrunner must have a very interesting vision of what the show is going to be so i you know it it very very cool i think and i don't know <laughs> i i don't know if alan scott will be revealed as a green lantern until maybe the towards the end of the season or something. I think that would be kind of like, you know, you know, fans like us, we would know that going into it, but maybe new viewers wouldn't. And to have him, you know, be revealed as a Green Lantern, I think that that would kind of be a, a cool little twist. Definitely, definitely would be a fun twist. Uh, Kelly, what were your thoughts? I mean, honestly, of the Green Lanterns, I think Alan Scott is the one that I'm the least familiar with. Um, you know, and it is interesting to see, you know, like Brad was saying, that they're bringing in characters from kind of the far reaches of, of the DC universe as a whole. Um, you know, a lot of the characters that we don't tend to see very often. So, you know, <clears throat> I'm excited, but also it's, you know, I don't really have a horse in the race on the ground so that I don't know a ton about Alan Scott. So it's, you know, more power to them. I hope it goes really well. Um what I was thinking when I heard about this and um, it's really intriguing for me is the idea that this is the Alan Scott or this is the Green Lantern we're seeing Alan Scott. 
and that Kelly, you've really brought up an interesting point, which is if if you're not sure why this is happening, it can raise a whole series of questions. Um, and that also it represents, as Brad pointed out, this reaching out to so many different versions of characters within the DC uh, comic universe. What I'm most intrigued by, though, is that it feels like this will be the first step in really sort of definitively connecting Stargirl with the Justice Society of America. I feel like, uh, given the fact that she'd been involved with so many versions of either its uh, sort of generational breakdown, which was really common when you saw after. So after we had the Justice Society, there was the uh, Infinity, oh, Infinity Inc. And so many of those characters were the uh, either inspired by the Justice Societies of America or members or they were actual descendants of them. Um, so you saw different examples of that happening. And then later, it seemed like they, they merged Stargirl in with, you know, a form of the JSA. So I guess I'm really excited about the idea. If they're going to have Alan Scott, well, then Wildcat and Doc Midnight and all these other guys are like right behind it. You know what I mean? Like we're going to start out that first season kind of understanding who Stargirl and Stripes are. And then we're going to see that kind of Alan Scott's maybe been mentoring, shadowing. Maybe he's involved with uh, he was like a television guy, right? Gotham Broadcasting, I think. He had his own television station or different versions where he was involved in, like, multimedia. And I kind of feel like he'll be that sort of mentor figure or figure who's just sort of, like, on the periphery or providing some sort of guidance or something. And that once it's revealed he's the Grand Lantern, we'll also sort of get to feel like, oh, and by the way, I'm not the only one who's around. Meet the rest of, you know, the JSA kind of thing. Um the thing that really sticks out the most for me, though, about this story is that this is all coming from a guy from a Facebook group called his name's Lance. And I'm going to butcher his last name, Offresser, who provided the information. But he's been sort of supported by the fact that he's the one who's made regular announcements, including the most recent about uh, Pretty Little Liars star Drew Van Acker being cast as Garth Aqualad. Any sort of thoughts about, you know, where this is coming from, if that changes, whether or not you believe it to be true, and or uh, anything more about Alan Scott with Stargirl? I think he gives it a little more credibility, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just intrigued because it seems like we're getting a lot of this information from so many different sources. Some of our earlier stories came from places like The Hollywood Reporter. We've had stories where we get the sources variety, and yet this one is based on a Facebook group. And yet it's one that's provided credible information so far. But um, it's really interesting that we're starting to get some of these announcements from places that fall outside of the larger media scope you know that they're actually sort of developing in groups or discussions that uh, might not have been the first go-to place for a lot of people when it comes to getting new news or confirmed uh, announcements like that i was also intrigued by the fact that you know we had the recent announcement that preacher season four has a little bit of a teaser to let us know that this uh I believe it's the final season, correct? We'll be uh, coming up, and we're yes. going to be closing things out. Um, what do you guys think about this little 15-second uh, teaser that they provided for uh, feature season four? Brad, I'll start with you. Not to gush over everything, but I, I've mentioned on this podcast 
more than a few times how much I absolutely love Preacher. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I am sad to see the show go, but I think that if they're smart about it, they can wrap up the story that was in the comics in one more season. Uh, and if they do that, I will be happy that we got the full story at least on you know on screen because this is a this is a series that spent most of the you know the later half of the 90s and most of the early 2000s uh, you know in development hell so the fact that it existed and they were able to tell the whole story uh, i love it <laughs> <laughs> great news uh kelly what were your thoughts about this announcement yeah absolutely um you know i i would hope that if they're they already know they're going to wrap it up this season so you know like we were saying about um you know about arrow if they have a known ending then they have a little bit of time and a little bit of leeway to plan to make sure that they do justice to you know the the, the story from the books um it's only slightly ironic that this is ending at the same time that we're seeing you know vertigo essentially stop existing or it still exists, whatever, it's, I'm still kind of <laughs> butthurt about it, but <laughs> in any case, um, you know, I really hope that they're able to wrap up the season in a way that does justice to the books and does justice to the fans who have been loyal to it for this long. I can't help but agree because one, I'm happy to admit that I have hurt butt when it comes to DC Comics Vertigo. And anyone who wants to comment on that is happy to go ahead and just go for it. Because it's disappointing that, for me, DC Vertigo was the literature side of comics. That, that I was always sort of trying to mature and grow up enough to understand. Because when I was first uh, introduced to the comic book world in, like, the sixth grade and just sort of amazed by it all, all I could think about was how I could finally get all these great heroes that I loved you know, in my room, in my comic book plastic covers with their boards in a box and own them in some way, like know that they were mine. And that as I started, you know, experiencing some of the best that Vertigo could provide, you know, some of these titles, which also, you know, were a little bit, you know, if my parents caught me reading, I'd have some explaining to do and some really <laughs> awkward explaining to do um, that, that I could find them through friends who this was like going to your friend's house and watching the show you weren't allowed to watch at home. And, and I could do it with comics um, that that even as that's ending, if we're ending it on the right note, if you guys have boys pointed out that that this is something that we're seeing faced by Arrow. And that if the intention is right, if your goal is to finish the storyline that was in the comics, like Brad pointed out, they have a possibility of doing it here, that they could really end up with kind of a, a love letter to DC Vertigo fans right when, you know, losing DC Vertigo comics could be so heartbreaking that it, at least you have this love letter to kind of sustain you on, maybe. Um, I know that for me, it's it's one that I wasn't able to keep up regularly and that I'm trying to find the best platform so I can just stream the hell out of it and catch up in time for this fourth season. And I, I guarantee if I, I can pull that off, I'll give you an update before the first one and we can, you know, start dishing when this new season starts offering up uh, episodes for us to talk about. Um, other than that, I thought it was a great sort of setup teaser. And, uh, you know, I loved everything that you guys were adding about what we can sort of hope 
and expect when it comes to this final season of Preacher. That's going to do it for the TV and streaming news. And it also means before we can move into the final bit about comic book news, we have to take a quick break. Go ahead and make sure that you're fully informed about DC Comics news and all the events going on with us and through it. And also that we've paid some of those really important bills. I guarantee it's just a few seconds and we'll be right back with you. Thanks for hanging with us. We'll be right back. This is Seth Singleton from DC Comics News. Here to tell you about the Spinner Rack. Each and every week, DC Comics publishes so many great books, it can be hard to decide where to invest your time and money. And that's where the Spinner Rack comes in. The Spinner Rack is my honest attempt to rate, review, score the top five books from DC Comics each and every week. How can you listen? It's easy. All you have to do is go to your favorite platform, Subscribe to DC Comics News Podcasts and wait for the new episode to load up. Join me each and every week as I sift through the best from DC Comics and pick my top five books. Can't wait to share them with you and to hear your scores when you share them with us right here on the DC Comics News Podcast. Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's D-C-N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that, uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. Back to you guys. And I know that longing can be so difficult over those long periods of time. But it was a short commercial break, and we're right back here with you. It's me, Brad Felicki, and Kelly Gaines. Just say hi, guys. Hello. Hello. And you've been with us if you've been there from the beginning with everything we had to say about the movie and TV streaming news. It's time to go ahead and slide into that source material that for so many of us was the first place this wild adventure all began, and that's in the world of comic book news. And a bit of a sad announcement uh, for a mainstay that was another one of those don't get caught reading that by mom content. And I'm talking about Mad Magazine, which is dropping its new content and announced that it will be leaving newsstands. And that's not the first of the uh, the bit of news going around about Mad Magazine, there's also the announcement that senior editor Dan Telfer was laid off by DC. Uh, both of these announcements were sort of like, uh, you know, kicking the gut. But before we get my response, uh, I'd love to hear what Brad and Kelly have to say. Brad, if I could start with you real quick. You know, it's funny you brought that up about the, if your mom's found you reading it, because I was thinking that exact same thing about Mad Magazine when you were talking about comics, <laughs> because I knew the story was coming up. It is, it is sad to see it go. Uh, it was a cultural constant, uh, you know, for a long time. It was just this cultural touchstone, uh, like a rite of passage for a lot of people. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of comedians out there that got their first bit of comedy from reading old issues of Mad Magazine. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> and, you know, it was it was 
it was very clever and very expected. Uh, we need those kind of places to um, poke fun at culture and our leaders. And, and in these times, it's sad that there's going to be less one less avenue for that to happen. Um, you know, I maybe someday down the line it can be resurrected somehow. Uh, you know, they they did mention that there'll be new content in like year end issues and things like that. But you know, overall, it's it's pretty sad. And I would like to see Dan Telfer go on to start something new, uh, whether it be a website or whatever. You know, it's it'll be kind of interesting to see what he does next if he doesn't retire. Gotcha. Um, I can agree with all of the things that you said, but I'd love to hear what Kelly has to say before I chime in. Kelly, how about you? I mean, in in the realm of bitter tweets, I I think Dan Telfer's tweet about being let go from DC was that that was intense. I've never seen someone share their resume via Twitter before. That that is that is something else. But um, you know, it it is really unfortunate to see um, you know to see Mad Magazine go. And I, I read, um, you know, with Paul Levitt saying that he never really found a way to update it for modern kids and the way that they like to read and, you know, get their, their media sort of is a little bit disappointing to me because it's, you know, I didn't, I, I'm not aware of any sort of big push to get Mad Magazine as, you know, as an app or as something digital or as something that, you know, modern, modern kids tend to interact a little bit less on paper and a little bit more through digital means. Um, you know, so it's, I think it's unfortunate. I think that there was probably a lot of hope for it, but, you know, it, it is what it is. And at the very least, we'll have those end of the year issues. But um, yeah, it's, it's sad to see it go. And I think it will take a little bit away from, because so many of us, came to comics through, you know, enjoying the humor behind Mad Magazine and that sort of creativity. Um, you have to wonder what sort of void that's going to create with kids who are just starting to read comics now. Perfectly adding on to what Brad was saying, I, I really think that you, you brought in that other concern. You know, Brad was saying how, how this provided that sort of outlet, that first experience for comedians, for those who want to hear, uh, you know, a challenging perspective to whatever the, the current popular or main culture is suggesting or saying or the reverency that goes with it. Um, and how you, you're bringing in that element that, that not only are we, we losing that, but also with that void, what are we going to fill it with? Um, and Kelly, I also can't help but, you know, agree with you that that tweet that sort of um i mean hey there i'm a nerdy writer type looking to land somewhere after being laid off from my two-year stint as senior editor of mad magazine all leads and retweets are appreciated here's my resume here's my portfolio also you know here's my linkedin profile uh that was pretty surprising for me and something that i also have never seen before um and it sort of you know sort of made me pause for a second and think wow you know, that's that's got to be really difficult. And, you know, I agree with you both that I hope he gets back on his feet and that he's able to, uh, you know, find uh, a new direction. Uh, I like the idea of him being involved with something like an online product or uh, some other direction like that. You know, it it points out that he's had experience on The Onion, on Nerdist, working with Comedy Central, and that he was part of this uh, sort of launch reboot. 
back in 2017 and the, and this hope of, of making things better. But, you know, Kelly, you also brought up a great point that there wasn't really any sort of awareness on my part of any actual attempt to do uh, more when it came to this magazine or to help get it in front of our faces. We've seen stuff from the uh, new Superman um, year one and things like the Mira book where they've done uh, trailers and ads and things like that. And I don't remember those with Mad Magazine. I don't remember seeing other sort of pushes to, you know, get us to either get the first issue or some other monumental issue for Mad Magazine. So I, I'm a little confused about this idea that they wanted to do something, but we didn't really see any evidence of it. And then in the end, it seems like more like they were just hoping that something was going to get better without actually doing too much about it. And that when that happens, well, what else do you think is going to happen except something that wasn't working is going to continue to not work? Um, I thought you both brought up some great points. If you wanted to add anything else about those before we, you know, step away from this really sort of uh, additional disappointing story to add on some of the bad news we've been getting recently. You know, I think that yeah. Kelly brought up a good point in just in the fact that it was hard to find a way to get kids to read it it's almost like they'll still put it out but it'll still be those same old guys that have been reading it since the 70s you know and the 80s that would pick up the book and that just wasn't enough to sustain it they just did not know how to market that to a younger audience and i you know when you open up a mad magazine it's very dense with content there's a lot of words, you know, and there's so much in one issue. It's not exactly for like the Internet age where you read like a five minute article. It's like an issue of Mad Magazine is something that you carry with you for a few days before you get all the way through it. And it's it's, it's there's not a lot of room for kind of that in today's media world. That's yeah, I almost. Oh, Kelly, go ahead, please. I, I am I, I think that's really unfortunate though because I if we are kind of shortening content making things as instantly easy and accessible especially with kids who are growing up trying to find you know find their sense of humor find their opinions in the world figure out what they like if everything is so condensed and so short that you can open it up on your phone and read it in two minutes and you're done I have to wonder in the long run if that's going to have an effect on the quality of storytelling that we get as a whole. Um, you know, it's you lose a lot when you shorten content. Yes, it makes it easier, but do, is it actually doing anything for us as, I mean, we're going to get real philosophical here, but as an evolving species, is that helping us? <laughs> and I, I don't think it is personally. <laughs> well, Kelly, I appreciate that you're the one who's getting up on this one because I can't tell you how many times I've, I've said something that I thought I was just rambling and you're like dude that was pretty deep and I'm like oh yeah I did it again <laughs> so really appreciate that you took us down that that sort of path for a minute because I mean it's part of a larger discussion you know um, so thank you for, for bearing some of the weight on that um, but also thank you for bringing it up because it's, it's one of those things that probably can't be uh, re-emphasized or reinforced is that content is changing and the way that we interpret it the way that we create it for the next generations is changing the way that they can access previous older forms of content, whether it's literature, film, television, 
uh, or things online, you know, if, if there's less of a desire to sit down and read these longer works and we're shortening the work, how is that affecting the storytelling? I, I'm the guy who, uh, and I could really maybe get some negative response on this, but one of the first episodes I was ever shown of Grey's Anatomy, I started to lose it midway through the episode because there was like a series of like montages of scene with just music. And I said, there's nothing happening. I mean, I'm seeing people running around to music and giving either sad or angry or thoughtful <laughs> or mournful looks, but they're not saying anything. You know, and Brad, what you pointed out about Mad Magazine was you had to sit down and read it. I mean, you know, actually, when I was listening to you, I couldn't help but think, Kelly, was this like one of the original purse books? Um, you know, was this like one of those things that you just carried around for like a week in your backpack or purse and you pulled it out at the bar when you were ready to go home because you weren't done reading it and you wanted to like, you know, read more and just sit down and read, which there was a lot of words in Mad Magazine for all the pictures and, you know, silly imagery that went with it. You, you had to read to understand what was going on. You actually had to read for more than five minutes <laughs> maybe more than 10 right brad and and in doing so yeah. you sort of got to this deeper sort of irony and this sort of rich history which was hey if we're gonna scald you you know in writing it's not gonna be a little zinger it's gonna be a long drawn out process and at the end of it all you're gonna think man you really wanted to let that person or that subject have it and Mad Magazine did it. it. It didn't hold back and it used all the pages it needed. If we're not willing to provide people the chance to see that or we're not willing to, you know, make it still accessible to, you know, the people we're creating content for now, how are they ever going to be able to access it? You know, where's going to be the bridge that, that allows them to, to be part of that sort of rich history? So, you know, I thought you guys brought up some really great points about that. And once again, Kelly, thank you for being the one to, you know, take it down the deep philosophical path. Um, no worries. You know, don't worry. Uh, you know, Brad's done it to us a few times, too. So anytime we're all sharing <laughs> weight, I really appreciate it. Um, it. It makes it a little bit more fun for everybody listening, too. Uh, in that note, you know, we are seeing that forms of adaptation are being expressed in other areas of D.C. The announcement that D.C. will be adapting. Rooster Teeth, RWBY, and Genlock for comics was recently uh, announced, I think, as early as, uh, oh, no, can't see the date for sure on this one. Maybe July, no, July 5th. So, wow, that's a really big announcement just coming out yesterday. Did you guys have any response to this story or, or thoughts about either of these titles? I, I think it makes good business sense. Um, it, it's kind of like the anti-Mad magazine. Kids may not be into Mad Magazine, but judging by the cons that I go to, kids love Rooster Teeth. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. So, and I'm not really familiar with the world, so I'm I, I'm kind of intrigued by this because I think this might be a cool introduction to those worlds for me, just picking up these comics. So I'm kind of in that sense, uh, kind of looking forward to it, just so I can just learn more about what it is, because I haven't seen the shows or anything like that. So. But a comic seems like a, a cool jumping off point for me, or jumping in point. Kelly, what do you think about this? Yeah, I am. Um, I'm not particularly familiar with either of those universes either. Um, I think I actually did watch a couple episodes of um, RWBY or 
I'm, in my head, I call it Ruby. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it, it was a long time ago, and I think I actually didn't really like the art style that much. So it'd be interesting to see if the comics translate what um, you know what viewers were seeing onto the screen exactly, or if it's kind of a variation of it. Um, but yeah, it's I I would pick it up. I would read it, and if you know, I know specifically just from younger kids that I know via my my younger brother. Um, really into anime, really into that kind of thing. So this could be a really great way for DC to pull in some new readers. I also am not familiar with either of these titles. So I'm intrigued because uh, not knowing about them, I'm interested to see, you know, just what it is that they have to offer. Um, I, I am intrigued by uh by what you mentioned kelly that you didn't you know what you had seen you weren't the biggest fan of when it comes to art because that actually made me want to uh look at these two different teams of artists we have whether it's uh murka and dolfo and uh rf prianto murka from dc bombshells hexwise and wonder woman uh prianto from deathstroke and on the other team they've got uh oh who is it now uh carlo Barbieri from Green Lantern's Adventures of Super Sons. Uh, either one of those artists you're familiar with or that you might be intrigued by seeing their interpretations of either of these groups of stories? I've read Hexwives. That would be interesting to see. I, I did like the artwork for that. Um, okay. And Wonder Woman as well, actually. Yeah, so that's that would be interesting to see. That seems like the artwork would actually be really good then. Okay. Um, yeah, just because when you mentioned that, I noticed that you know they made a point of who these uh the team-ups were for the artists uh also that we've got you know really great uh writers marguerite bennett is going to be working on a rwby and uh oh who was it again oh it was co-writers they were going to have colin kelly and jackson lansing um so some interesting team-ups i like the descriptions for rwby uh and also genlock just not knowing about them Basically, RWBY takes place in a world with horrific monsters bent on death and destruction, where humanity's hope lies with powerful huntsmen and huntresses. Uh, I'm a big sort of sword sorcery fantasy guy since you know my childhood, um, but I like the idea of casting it with these uh, characters: Ruby Rose, Weishni, uh, Blake Belladonna, and uh, Yang Yao Long. Um, and also that they've got a, a school called the Beacon Academy. All those sound like really great elements, you know, for a story. And then the Genlock story about pilots who are part of Earth's last free society and a next generation of weaponized bodies, you know, these, these sort of mecha units and getting to see a different take on those. Uh, both are concepts that I would be interested in. And really, I have to be honest, without hearing about this announcement through this, this might have been something that, you know, wasn't on the radar for me. So I'm curious to check out both. And I also like the idea that they they seem to be embracing some of those uh, mystical fantasy storylines that aren't always possible with superhero characters. But that when you uh, look at something like this or what was that last one we were talking about last week, Brad? It was called like The Last God. Yeah, and it yeah. definitely seemed yeah, to be like you, another sword and sorcery. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious to see these these projects moving uh, sort of into different venues for, uh, you know, DC, something I haven't really expected to see from them since the days of like Warlord and Commandi and stuff like that. Um, so seeing how they're taking these products and also 
sort of branching out a bit. Yeah, it's an interesting move, and uh, I'm curious to see you know, just what they're going to show us when it's all said and done. Um, when it comes to other stories out there, I was curious what you guys thought about this Murphy Jansen and Hollingsworth working on a Mr. Freeze project. Um, you know, I, I thought the art was gorgeous, but you know, I was curious what your responses were to this sort of uh, team up and, and what you think it might mean. Um, Brad, I'll start with you. Well, if it's as, half as good as White Knight, uh, I can't wait to read it. I really enjoyed White Knight, um, and I'm really looking forward to the sequel, too. Um, but uh, the art was cool, too. I'm kind of taken aback by Hitler and the Nazis. I, I did not realize, or maybe, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I didn't think that there was any Nazi connection with, uh, with Mr. Freeze before this part for this art so it's like when none that i was that? aware of either yeah, yeah. Okay, i didn't think so kelly how about you what did you think about that i'm personally i'm really excited i really like mr freeze as a villain he has such a relatable story when it comes to why he is the way he is um as far as dc villains go they you know they don't always do an amazing job with a backstory, but Mr. Freeze is one of the ones that is just, you get it when you see why he's doing what he does, why he's struggling, why he's trying to, um, you know, to save his wife, to keep his family together. That is really, really interesting and really relatable as a character. So I'm excited to see him, you know, kind of in his own solo title. And then, you know, also as Brad was saying, White Knight was amazing. So I'm hoping that this will have that same level of quality to it. And I think in you know, several episodes ago, we talked about their, um, you know, for the DC Kids line, they were making a, I think it was, a, I want to say Victor and Nora title of some yeah. sort. So yeah. I'm glad that we're getting our own. Yeah. It'll be good. I hope. <laughs> yeah, I think Kelly brings up a good point that he's such a sympathetic villain. So uh, because of that sympathy that he generates he could carry i mean if it happens to be a mini series you know i don't know if that's been announced exactly what context it's going to be but i think that he could definitely carry a mini series well I, I definitely agree that the uh the sympathy that's been created and that's really been easiest to relate to audiences about victor freeze and his relationship uh with his wife and the predicament that they've been in is something that was i think made really accessible through batman the animated series which i thought did really a masterful job of of introducing and sort of help reinforce the ideas that had been expressed in comics but maybe hadn't been able to reach as wide of an audience um i do agree with you both that it's got um i mean victor is one of those characters who has enough complexity that he can carry a storyline in a title all by himself. Um, and I'm intrigued by this idea about the Nazis that you brought up, Brad, because uh, one of the things that catches my attention the most as soon as I saw that was, wouldn't it be interesting if Victor's history began in Germany during um, World War II? And if for whatever reason, part of his transition or building into the story is the idea of him needing to leave where maybe the technology was ready, but the politics weren't, and he mm -hmm. needed to come to the U.S., which is where he tried to further his research, but the technology isn't up to par or the research isn't advanced enough, and that's why he has to 
you know, do more than just what's capable within the world of science. And I think it adds a, a little bit more of one, you know, historical, uh, cultural context to it. But I also feel like it adds to the layer of sort of desperation that's always been such a big part of Victor Fries's fabric, this idea mm -hmm. that, you know, he's always sort of torn and struggling. Um, but I was I was also surprised by the introduction of the, the Nazis. And when you brought it up, Kelly, you were really responsive as well to that idea. Did you have a, a thought you wanted to add? You guys were kind of overlapping. And I was like, oh, man, I want to make sure I don't miss this part because this <laughs> seemed to be an interesting development that, that you guys both had things to say about. Um, yeah, I am. Um, well, my, my one thing that kind of as you were talking, I, I thought of is that there was a while back a Magneto series that, you know, again, Magneto's one of those really sympathetic villains and it ties him back to Nazi Germany. So my hope is that when this is finished, it doesn't mirror that series too closely because again, you know, when it's the sort of the villain that you understand and the tragic family life that you can relate to, um, I, I'm hoping that it's not going to turn into sort of a cop-out to root that in, you know, a Nazi Germany background. Um, you know, there's there's no indication that that's going to be the case, but just as, as you were saying it, I'm kind of thinking like, huh, I've somewhat heard this before. Um, you know, my, my hope is that that's not how that ends up, but it I, I have all the faith so far that this is going to be a great title. You know, I really appreciate you bringing up the uh, Magneto storyline because I remember when I saw that, you know, presented in the film versions, um, it was really powerful. I thought it was extremely moving. And I also can see where grounding it in that way made Magneto in many ways uh, a somewhat sympathetic character. I mean, he didn't always do the right things, but it, in some ways it, his history helped make his actions seem somewhat sympathetic or understandable and that if that same sort of association can be drawn for victor um and it's done correctly then yeah it could be really valuable but you've you brought up an important point which is if it's just the idea that all of his sort of uh all the complications in his life or all the, the wrong decisions he was making roots from Nazi Germany, that could be a really uncomfortable cop-out. But if it ends up being part of that sort of complex, intrinsic, like, layers that, that have always been a part of Victor, then it, it could be a really great job. Um, and it could also, you know, add more to his story in a way that isn't really something we can sort of see from the surface right now. But that is part of that storytelling. If there's one more element that sort of just makes it like, ooh, Oh, I, I thought he had it bad before, but oh, that last little sort of dig. You know what I mean? Like, you know, what if he has to work for the German uh, Nazi uh, science group that is working on the cure? And it's a choice between either getting the cure and staying trapped in Germany or not getting the cure and leaving to the U.S. That that would be that like sort of great story idea where you're like, wow. You know what I mean? He had yeah. to make that hard choice and that that would really give it to him. But if it's like oh, Victor was a good kid, and then he joined the Nazi Youth Party, and then he got corrupted, and now he's just a bad seed. Like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm really going to tap out at that point and just say, you guys just lost my money. Um, so <laughs> there's a great opportunity here. It's just about how they uh, execute it, I guess, right? Um, final thoughts on this last story of the episode? No. Cool. 
uh, happy to go ahead and, and leave it at the fact that, you know, I thought all those answers were really great. And I think that we've sort of set up our, our own expectations um, and deservedly so based on what they've shown us about it. And that eventually we'll get a chance to talk about whether or not they actually, you know, pulled it off. Um, this brings us to the end of episode number 32 of the DC Comics News podcast. And time for just a little bit of the business to make sure you're always staying up to date with us. Remember, when you're looking for a place to listen, the DC Comics News is now on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. So please head over, subscribe to the podcast, rate and review. I say five stars, and if you have a reason why not, well, you got to tag me in a comment. <laughs> or Brad or Kelly, whoever you want to do, and just argue with us about it or give us a reason why. And the way she can do it on social media is on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. You can let us know what you're thinking just by using the at DC Comics News tag. That's at D-C-C-O-M-I-C-S-N-E-W-S. And when you do, go ahead and grab us by name and let us know which part of this podcast we got right we got wrong or just where you think there's something else we need to know if you recognize my voice from the dc comics news podcast it's because i also do the spinner rack right here on the dc comics news podcast each and every week my top five books i could go on more about it but just check it out so i don't have to you know embarrass myself by talking about myself when i'd rather talk to you about this great group that i've been lucky enough to chat with today uh, when it comes to finding and keeping up with all the great things that brad and kelly are producing for dc comics news and the internet at large brad how can the people find you and where should they look uh, you can find me on dc comics news write news and reviews you can uh, check me out on twitter flicky b1 uh, that's where you can find me perfect and kelly how can the fans find you um, you can check me out on DC Comics News. I do opinion and editorial pieces. And then on Twitter, it's uh, K-E-L-G-A-I-N-E-S, right, W-R-I-T-E. Um, and yeah, yeah, that's where you'd find me. <laughs> and those are all the best places and the best ways to let them know what you think about all the things that we were talking about this week, last week, each and every week. And we could probably send you off with a lot of other great information, but there's one thing you're always going to hear at the end of every episode of DC Comics News, and that is to always read more comics. Boom. It's been a great episode, folks. Thanks for sticking with us. See you next time.